chapter 7. The second half of that, we're going to pick it up in verse 24 and through the end of the end of the chapter. So I'm going to go ahead and read it, and then we're going to dig into it and talk a little bit about it. It says, Jesus got up and went away from there to the region of Tyre. And when he had entered a house, he wanted no one to know of it, yet he could not escape notice. But after hearing him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately came and fell at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile of the Syrophoenician race, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he was saying to her, Let the children be satisfied first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered and said to him, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. And he said to her, Because of this answer, go, the demon has already gone out of your daughter. And going back to her home, she found the child lying on the bed, the demon having left. Again, he went out from the region of Tyre and came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee within the region of Decapolis. They brought to him one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty, and they implored him to lay his hand on him. Jesus took him aside from the crowd by himself and put his fingers in his ears, and after spitting, he touched his tongue, and looking up to heaven with a deep sigh, he said to him, Ephathrath, that is, be open. And his ears were opened, and the impediment of his tongue was removed, and he began speaking plainly, and he gave them orders not to tell anyone. But the more he ordered them, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. They were utterly astonished, saying, He has done all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Now, <clears throat> I titled this one, Dogs, Deaf, and Dumb. And that had been posted in the, the bulletin last week. And someone came to me and asked, like, but, but that's offensive. I mean, is that okay? You, you shouldn't. And, and I appreciated them, them coming and asking me that. But I, I want to let it be known, yes. It is offensive. It's actually very offensive. This passage has some things in it that are rather rude. I don't recommend calling anyone any of these. Okay, let me, let me be very clear about that from the get-go. I don't recommend calling people dogs. I don't recommend calling them deaf or dumb. That's not polite. That's not nice. Particularly in our modern setting, in our culture, and our understanding of those words. However, that's what happens in this passage. So sometimes when we come to Scripture, we ought to be ready to be a little bit surprised by it, maybe even a little bit shocked by it, perhaps even a little bit offended by it. We need to then examine, well, what's going on? Why does it use these words? Why is it emphasizing those things? What is happening? And I think that we, with digging in, can begin to understand some of those things. Now, just prior to this, we saw in chapter 6 that Jesus' authority was put on display. We found out that he had authority over all kinds of different things. He has authority over demons. We've seen that time and time again. He has authority over illnesses of, of healing. He had authority over food because he fed 5,000 with just a few little loaves and fishes. We saw that he had authority even over the wind and the waves. He told it to be still and it stopped. 
all kinds of different miracles and things that we've been seeing. Jesus is in authority. We saw over and over and over again. And then last week, we dug into how he was received by some of the scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. They expected him to follow the traditions, the the things that they just normally always did. Well, he kind of broke the mold and did things his own way instead. Today, we're actually going to be looking at two sections. And each of these sections could stand alone, but I think when we look at them combined together, it continues the flow of what we've been seeing. Because just prior to this, Jesus had dealt with this idea of men's traditions and the fact that his disciples were eating without washing their hands in a ceremonial way. And that was shocking to the religious leaders. And yet he said, it's not what goes in that defiles or that makes someone unclean. It's what comes out of the heart that matters. Well, now we're going to be continuing that idea. Keep that idea of unclean and ceremonially not fitting into the traditions and the expectations of the Jewish leaders of the day as we go into this passage. We're actually going to see several things. They're going to be rather odd and a little bit offensive, but we're going to see faith, we're going to see a fulfillment of a promise, and we're going to see a follow-up from what Jesus has done before. It starts off in verse 24, it says that Jesus got up and went away from there. Well, where did he go? It says right in the passage, but where did he go? To Tyre. Okay, who knows where that's at? Anybody? I, I had them go ahead and put up a map for us just because I like pictures. I like to be able to see things. And I, I know that it's a really tiny map, so if you have a map in the back of your Bible, that might be a little bit better to look at. But we're talking about the northern half of Israel. He's been operating around the Sea of Galilee, which is kind of right in the middle there. At this point, he travels to the northwest, up to a little bitty town called Tyre. Well, it's a little bitty dot here. It's actually not that small of a town, it's a fairly large region. Now, this area comes up multiple times throughout Scripture. It's right there on the Mediterranean Sea, and so it was a port city, had a lot of trade, a lot of um, international value, because it was a, a trade partner for when Solomon was king in the Old Testament. He set up lots of interaction with Tyre and Sidon, which is another town in that area. That was a, a profitable place for them. But as you go through the Old Testament, you'll see them come up over and over again throughout the prophets. And during the time of the prophets, we actually find that they are not well favored because they focus on greed, self-centeredness, a desire to acquire for themselves. And they are not a very good example of who God wants following him. Actually, he wants everybody following him, but not a good example of followers of God. And so Tyre and Sidon throughout the rest of the Old Testament kind of become more negatively viewed. From the historians of Jesus' time, a guy by the name of Josephus, the record indicates that actually at this point, the Jews did not like Tyre at all. They were recorded, according to that historian, they are recorded as bitter enemies. They're not friendly. So why in the world would Jesus go there? See, we, we read this and we say, okay, he went to the region of Tyre. Okay, that's, that's a little bit north and west of where he'd been. He's just continuing, uh-uh, there's more going on than that. This is 
he's going to a place where people don't really like him and his, his people don't really like them. There's, there's a little bit of cultural, ethnic arguments going on. And yet, he goes there. Why in the world would he go there? Any ideas? Any suggestions? Huh? To proclaim the truth. What has his job been the entire time? You, you remember all the way back at the beginning of Mark. What is he doing? He's, go ahead. Okay. Yeah, it's a trade hub. Okay. That particular location gives him opportunity to reach more. But throughout all of the Gospel of Mark, his goal, his purpose has been to declare the good news, or we would say the gospel, of the kingdom of God. So, as we get into this passage, we have to understand a little bit and, and keep in mind, what is God's purpose? What is his goal? Was his goal just for the Jewish nation, just the Jews? Or was it something else? Well, we're going to get to that. Don't, don't jump ahead too much, Isaac. But we're going to get to that this morning. So he goes into the region of Tyre to continue doing what he has been doing, even though it may not be a comfortable situation. It may not be with people who necessarily like him. Another possible reason is he has, for the last couple of chapters, he's been trying to get away with his disciples to a quiet place, to a secluded place. His attention has kind of turned from teaching crowns to trying to teach his disciples. And so we see through the rest of verse 24, he went, uh, when, when he had entered a house, he wanted to no one to know of it, and yet he could not escape notice. So it, it seems to indicate that to some extent he might be taking his disciples to just train them and teach them and interact with them a little bit more. And that this, you know, possibly could be a little bit more of a quiet place where the crowds that have been surrounding him there by the Sea of Galilee couldn't get near to him. Another possibility, and I, I think that it's a little bit of all of these, but another possibility is that he's kind of been run out of town. He just had an interaction with the um, Jewish leaders, which he won logically. I mean, he, he can out-argue anybody. He won that logically, but his timing is not right yet. He's not ready for them to, to take him and to crucify him yet. That's coming up later. He also doesn't want them to, to elevate him to king in a way that isn't what he's trying to do. All of that comes from some of these records back in Mark, or sorry, in Matthew of the similar accounts. And so it, it's possible that Jesus kind of says, you know what, I need to get a little bit of time away from my normal area right there around the Sea of Galilee. And so he steps away. Uh, whichever, probably, like I said, most likely all of those, a little bit, um, a little bit because that's what he's doing. He's spreading the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God. But then also to spend some time with his disciples and to get out of the neighborhood for a little while, let things calm down, he goes into this other area, this area known as the region of Tyre. Now, like I said, Tyre was a, a city, kind of like you mentioned, like Los Angeles. It's, it's on the ocean, it's on the Mediterranean Sea, it'd be a major shipping port type of an idea. But he's actually in the region, so it's, it's that area, we don't know exactly what house he goes to. But he, he settles in, and he wants to have a little bit of quiet. But, just like all the time, over and over and over again throughout the Gospel of Mark, he doesn't get any quiet time. Uh, he could not escape notice. 
Now, like I said, Ma uh, Matthew talks about this same situation and, and interactions and different things going on. Um, but in this one, there's a particular woman that hears about him. Now, we're going we're gonna to dig into her just a little bit um, and identify what do we know about her. But she hears about him, and immediately she comes and falls down at his feet. And that, that idea is that he, she worshipped him. And she has a request. But we have to understand who is this woman. Well, number one, we need to realize she's a woman. There's some cultural things going on there. Jesus is a Jewish rabbi. He is a leader. He is, he is an elite. He doesn't interact with lowly women. That's, that's just culturally not something that should happen. But we've already seen time and time again, Jesus breaks that mold. He doesn't really worry about that. But I think Mark wants us to realize, okay, there's something going on there. It goes on to say, now the woman, this is verse 26, now the woman was a Gentile. Some Bibles say a Greek. She was not a Jew. This is not a Jewish area. Now, we just got done talking about the idea that Jesus' disciples were not following the ceremonial cleansing laws. And so they were ceremonially unclean. Well, here, Jesus is going to interact with a woman. That's not ceremonially clean. Who's a Gentile. That's not ceremonially unclean. We're, we're, the issue that she has is her little daughter has an unclean spirit. A demon is really what that is. But Mark emphasizes the fact that it's an unclean spirit. That's not ceremonially clean. So there's all kinds of stuff going on with that. And then verse 26, of the Syrophoenician race. Again, She's a Gentile. She is not a Jew. She is culturally different, ethnically different. This is not someone that a Jewish leader ought to be interacting closely with. But that's not going to stop Jesus. That's not his purpose. Now, <clears throat> this woman, back to verse 25, after hearing of him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit. What have we seen about unclean spirits before? Anybody remember? They show up a lot, right? They, they showed up in chapter 1. They showed up in chapter 3. They showed up in chapter 5. They showed up in chapter 7. If you can count by twos in odd numbers, it's each of those. 1, 3, 5, 7. We'll see them again in chapter 9. The, the unclean spirits just keep showing up, coming up over and over and over again. And... Each time that we've seen that, Jesus is completely in control of the situation. He is in charge. When he tells them to get out, they get out. When he tells them to go into pigs, they go into pigs. When he tells them to be quiet, they be quiet. Whatever it is that he says, he is in charge. No ifs, ands, or buts. Well, this woman had a little daughter, a young girl. Now, this is the same phrase, that same word that we saw with Jairus' little daughter, and we were told that she was 12. So we're not exactly sure how old this little daughter is, but probably 10 to 12, that kind of a range. That's what this term is used for. So a, a small, a little girl. Now, as I was studying, I, I like to listen to other uh, pastors and preachers talk about different things. And one of them kind of brought out that idea of a mother. What is a mother willing to do for their daughter, for their, their little child? I heard anything, right? 
she comes and bows down, falls at his feet, and asks. But she doesn't just ask once. It's not that she came up and said, Hey, Jesus, would you, would you cast out this demon? Gets no answer and she leaves. What does it say? Verse 26, And she kept asking. The, the, that's one of those where the, the uh, Greek word has so much going on in it, which is really cool. The, the verb is not that she asked once and got an answer, or that she asked twice and got an answer, but that she was continuously asking and asking and asking, which implies that Jesus isn't answering. That Jesus maybe is ignoring her, or just not answering the door as she knocks, and Jesus, Jesus, heal my daughter. Cast out this demon. It says, verse 26, she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Back in, in the, the same telling of this account in Matthew, Matthew chapter 15, 23, uh, it lets us know even more specifically that she has to wait and she waits, and he doesn't answer, and he doesn't answer. I mentioned that this passage is a little bit offensive. How many of you like to wait for God to answer your prayers? <laughs> yeah, I'm not raising my hand either. I don't like waiting. But it seems, it appears that Jesus is making her wait. That'd be tough. That'd be hard. You know, we, we often think of, of Jesus as, oh, just go to him, and he's, he's going to answer your prayers. He's going to take care of everything. It sure looks like she has to ask over and over and over again. Finally, he responds to her in verse 27. And his response is not quite what she was asking for, right? Her, her, or his response is, Let the children be satisfied first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Ouch. Now, as we read that, that ought to bristle a little bit with us because that's an insult. You, you, even modern day, if you call a woman a dog, that is not a compliment. Like I said, I don't recommend using these kinds of phrases. That said, we have to understand a little bit of the culture, a little bit of what's normal in their society. In their society, to call someone a dog was still an insult. It was not a good idea. However, the Jews frequently realize that others are not part of the Jewish faith and the, the Israelite community. And so they are outsiders. And so they would use this term for dogs to refer to Gentiles, to outsiders, to ones who were not part of Israel. And so it was insulting, but it was a normal, common thing. In, in today's society, I'm sure that you can think of terms that refer to non-people uh, of your community, of your group, in ways that are probably not polite, but they're the common way of speaking. I'm not going to use any of them. I'm sure you can imagine some of them. They come up a lot. I don't recommend it, but that is a normal thing. Now, one thing that we do have to recognize is Jesus uses a particular type of dog when he refers to this. He doesn't use the same one that's the common uh, outside wild animal, kind of, uh, of the idea like we would think of a coyote today, like a wild dog out 
out of doors that just tears up the lambs and causes all kinds of problems, things of that nature. No, he, he uses a diminutive term, a small term to say puppies, basically. So it, it does soften it a little bit. It's not as insulting, but it's still, he's referring to someone as a dog. And as, as a puppy or little dog is the idea. That term was more used not for the wild dogs outside, but more for the household pets, for the, the ones who are in the, the household, part of the community. But he's making a point. He says, let the children be satisfied or let them eat to their heart's content. Let them receive full meal. We've, we've seen this term come up with the feeding of the 5,000. When they, when they all ate, the 5,000 ate and were satisfied. And I made the point at that, at that uh, passage to recognize this wasn't that they just, each person got a little nibble, but like they ate a lot. And Jesus is saying, hey, let the children, the children of Israel, the, the, promise, or the chosen people of God, let them feast. So what, what is he saying? What's going on here? Well, they recognized, they knew that God had made all kinds of promises to the Jews, to the Israelites. Jesus was come for them. That was the, the, who the Messiah was promised to. And so Jesus is saying, you know, I, I came for the Jews. I came for the Israelites. That's my purpose. That's my reason for being here. Um, it is not good. It doesn't make sense to throw what is for the children out to the dogs, to the pets, to the, to the puppies. That doesn't make sense. Now, that seems like a pretty rude response. I mean, let, let's just step back and think through that for a moment. Here, this lady has come up. She's fallen at his feet. She's begging him to please heal my daughter. And at first, he ignores her, and then he insults her. That seems pretty harsh. That seems pretty rude. How does she respond to that? She, she could very easily, very reasonably say, forget it. I'm done with you. Walk away. She could get upset. She could get angry and start berating him, yelling at him, telling him how terrible he is. What does she do? She says, yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. Yes, Lord. She agrees with him. What, what you're saying is accurate. It's true. You, the Messiah, came for the purpose of the Jews. But, even though they are the main ones receiving, they're the main focus, when, when you feed kids at a table and you have a puppy dog in the house, don't you sometimes find some crumblies falling on the ground? And who gets to eat those? Well, the puppy, right? We actually train our dogs, we'll, we'll say floor, and they go looking and find where that is. And so she takes this, this parable, this, this concept, this idea that Jesus had started, she buys right into it and says, yes, exactly. You came for the people of Israel, but we, the Gentiles, we, we are you know, a different group. We are the puppies, the dogs, and yet we deserve to at least get the, the crumblies, the droppings, the, the extra. Now there's a phrase in here. There's a, a yes ma'am. So the dogs are the yes. Okay. Yes. Dogs, dogs in, in scripture when you see that used, dogs is referring to Gentiles. Um, and Paul will even say beware of the dogs in, 
I want to say Ephesians, and, and let it be known, you know, watch out for those outsiders, those who are trying to drag away the lambs, those who are causing problems, etc. But um, in this one, she then makes a statement. She says, yes, Lord. Now, that, if you, if you read any commentaries, there's going to be a ton of different views on that one. And I, I understand that. I want to let you know what I take from this, my understanding of this. When she uses that word, Lord, she is recognizing exactly who Jesus is. Now, the term, it's, it's kurios is the, the Greek word. The term itself can very easily just mean, yes, sir. It's a, a term of respect. You're right, I agree. However, Mark does not use it anywhere except here to be used by someone other than Jesus or a quote from the Old Testament. Let me, let me try and clarify that a little bit. I didn't come out quite as fluidly. The only time in Mark that this is used other than by Jesus or a quote from the Old Testament is right here. And in those quotes, and every time that Jesus uses it, it's referring to deity. It's referring to God and what God is doing, and his plans, and who he is, and how powerful and mighty he is. So in the Gospel of Mark, this word is only used to refer to God and what he's doing, which means if she is continuing that, then she is saying, yes, God, yes, Yahweh, yes, one who is in charge, yes, master of all things, you are right. Like I said, there's some debate on that. There are some people who say, well, it just means, yes, master, yes, sir. But I would encourage you to also look at Matthew chapter 15, verse 22. And we're, we're going to go ahead and turn there just to really quickly. Don't lose your spot here in Mark. But in Matthew chapter 15, verse 22, we have the, the account that is the, the parallel to this. Same thing that's going on. And in verse 22... There's a Canaanite woman. Matthew uses a little bit different phrasing to refer to the, the same person, the same situation that's going on. In verse 22, Behold, a Canaanite woman from the region came out and began to cry, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. That's how she's asking. That's what she's, she's saying. But I want you to focus on what does she call him? Lord, son of David. There is no argument that son of David is referring to the Messiah, the promised one of God. This is referring to the deity of Christ and recognizing who he is. Not just, going back to, to Mark, it's not just saying, yes, sir, yes, important teacher, yes, master. It's saying, yes, God. I acknowledge who you are and what you have to say and what's going on. Even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. She knows who she's talking to and what's going on. And she has a boldness, not only to come up and ask once, but to ask and ask and ask and continue to ask. Now, why would she do that? I, I propose, I would challenge that she knows exactly who she's dealing with. This Gentile... This one who is not part of Israel is one who understands who Jesus is, why he came, what he is there for. Which brings up the question for us, 
What is the basis of salvation? I know, that's a, a big jump and a big shift. But, what is the basis? In the New Testament, we know, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved, right? Okay, what about the Old Testament? What did it take for someone to be saved in the Old Testament? Faith. To believe God. The verses that I have listed up here are all quotes from uh, Genesis chapter 15. And they are places where it says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Now, you'll have to to kind of think through your Old Testament. uh, But Abraham was before the Jewish nation became a nation. He was one of the patriarchs that led into that idea. So God wasn't saving people just because they were Jews or just because they were of the Israelites. God's goal, God's purpose was always, has always been, will always be to save people from all tribes, all nations, all tongues, all languages, all people groups, all the world. This woman... This Gentile, this outsider, knew who God was and what his goal was, what his desire was. She is the first person in the Gospel of Mark to recognize the nature and the scope of God's salvation. No one else has called him God in this way. No one else has acknowledged the the breadth of his message. No one else has really gotten it the way that it sure looks like she does. She realizes that Jesus didn't just come for a few, a select group. He came for all. And as a Gentile, she comes up boldly and asks him, please, you're right. I'm not worthy. I, in and of myself, have no inherent value that makes me right with God. I'm not of the right people group. I'm not of the right faith background. I'm not of the right socioeconomic status. I'm not of the right fill in the blank. I think we could learn a lot from her. See, we are not worthy of Christ doing anything for us. Are we willing to humble ourselves, come before him, ask, even beg? As you go through the Old Testament, you find over and over and over again that God intends for his message to go to the whole world. He was doing that through the Israelites, through the Jews, to spread it to everyone. They didn't exactly do a great job of it. When Jesus comes, his goal is to spread the good news, the gospel of the kingdom of God, And he leaves his region and his area to go over to Tyre and Sidon and to let them know the same message. And this woman, she got it. She understood exactly who Jesus was, exactly why he was there. And she comes and humbles herself and begs and says, Yeah, I'm not worthy. I'm nothing special. I'm not important in and of myself. But... I know who you are. I know your attitude towards people, towards all people, all nations. And you're not wanting any of them to to starve, to go without. 
Yes, you have a process, you have a method, you're coming to the, to the children of Israel first. I acknowledge that, I get that. And you go through the rest of the New Testament, and Paul will repeatedly say that salvation came to the Jew first, and also to the Greek, also to the Gentile. And she is claiming that promise. She's saying, yeah, I, I trust you, I know you. I acknowledge who you are and what you're doing. Verse 29, he said to her, because of this answer. Now, that's another one of those where the commentators like to debate on it. I believe that Jesus knew where this was going in advance. He knew the argument and he sets it up. So why was he being rude? Why was he speaking in these terms? I think that he knows that this is an opportunity to test her faith, to let her faith shine. And then Mark is recording this for us so that we get that picture. Like I said, she's the first one to actually step up and do that. I think that Jesus intentionally goes to Tyre, intentionally meets with this lady, intentionally sets up some friction so that she has this opportunity to shine and let people know, no, the message isn't just for the Israelite. It's not just for the Jew. This message of who Jesus is, this gospel of the kingdom of God is for all peoples, all nations, everywhere. Yes, there's a process to it, but Jesus did come for all people. He says, because of this answer, the demon has gone. Now, that's a, a statement that says, it already happened, has already gone out of your daughter. Now, we've, we've spent a bunch of time focusing on, in on the woman. Let's, let's shift real quick and look at Jesus. I mentioned a bunch of things that we've seen of his authority and of his power. What just happened here? Did he have to do some kind of incantation? No. Did he have to lay hands on her? No. Did he have to speak anything? No. Jesus is completely in charge of every unclean spirit, of every demon. Already, the demon's gone. He's out of your daughter because of this answer that you've said. Because of your faith, because, woman, Syrophoenician lady, because you trust me, I've already taken care of it. It's dealt with. The, the demon has already gone. We don't know when that happened. Was it while she was asking over and over? Was it while they were having this, this interchange and this discussion, this maybe even we could call it a debate about whether or not she deserved to have him answer her, her, her at all? Was it right afterwards? We, we're not told exactly, but because of her answer, because of her faith, Jesus has already taken care of the demon. Gone. Then it tells us that she goes back to the house and she finds the child laying on the bed. She's recovered. She's relaxing. Now, we're not told a lot of what's going on with the demon or, or what the situation is, but what kind of a response would that be to a mother who was, was troubled, was worried, was perhaps even frantic about her daughter and came and just called out to Jesus? He says, I got it. We're good. Demon's gone. Head on home to find her child lying on the bed, the demon having left, already, already gone. Out of the picture. Wow. All of those 
barriers, all of those reasons, all of those excuses were nothing to Jesus. He didn't mind going to the Gentile region. He didn't mind interacting with a lady. He didn't mind interacting with uncleanness in their societal ways because the purpose of his coming was so much bigger, so much broader than just this this Jewish traditional view of what's clean and unclean and what's socially appropriate and not. Jesus came to give hope, to give salvation to all people. And this lady in the Gospel of Mark is, is being held up as one of the first to really, truly get it, to, to understand it, and to express that openly and boldly. Now, obviously, the disciples have been following Jesus. It, it's reasonable to, to assume that they understand, they trust him. I'm not, I'm not trying to downplay any of the others that we've seen, but we've also seen several times where they fail. They don't quite get it right. They don't understand what's going on. Obviously, we've seen the, the Jewish leaders come and, and insult him and argue with him. And even a few chapters ago, we saw that they left and they started trying to conspire with the, the Hellenists of how do we destroy or how do we kill him. So there's a lot of, of other people involved and a lot of other things going on. But this lady gets it. She understands who Jesus is and what he is trying to do. That's the first section. So what do we take from that? The main thing that I want us to to take away or to understand from that is that the God of the Old Testament is the same God as the God of the New Testament who throughout all of it wants people to be saved, wants all people to know him. And this is just one example of many in which we see that occur. We see that she comes humbly yet boldly, not on her own righteousness or her own, um, you know, because she's so special or wonderful, but simply out of trust and faith in who Christ is and the message that he brings. And she accepts him. We move on to the next section, starting off in verse 31. It says, Again, he went out from the region of Tyre and came through Sidon, that's an area about uh, 20 miles further north, to the Sea of Galilee. Which means, if you'll put the the map back up, it means that he had left the Sea of Galilee, gone northwest up to Tyre, headed further north to Sidon, which is kind of right at the top, and then circles all the way around the outside down to this area called Decapolis, which is a little bit to the southeast of the Sea of Galilee. So he has made this big loop that has taken him out of the area that he spent most of his time into a broader region, into a broader area. Now again, I think one of the main reasons is so that he can spread that message, the gospel of the kingdom of God, further and wider. Um, I think that it also is interesting that he stays out of the area ruled by a particular uh, one of the Herods and goes into other areas. So I think that 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 does play in a little bit as well. But he makes this this long route out and around. He went out from the region of Tyre, came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee within the region of Decapolis. Now, have we seen that area, that region of Decapolis before? I'll, I'll give you a hint. 
Yes. Does anybody remember when? <laughs> That's okay. Oh, go ahead. When? You remember the account of the legion of demons? And he cast them out into the pigs? That happened in the same general area, the region of Decapolis. Now, the region of Decapolis is a fairly large area, so not necessarily exactly the same spot. But if you recall from that account, what did Jesus tell that man who had the legion of demons cast out? What did he tell him to do? Go back to his family and tell everyone. That was, which was, was kind of odd when we saw that happen. Back at that point, he was telling everybody, don't spread it around, don't do this. And then he crosses the Sea of Galilee, heals this man, casts out the legion of demons, and says, I want you to go back to your family and tell everybody what the Lord has done for you. Okay? So that's the area, that's the region that he's gotten to. It sure looks like that guy has done a really good job. Because he arrives in that area, and it says... They brought to him one who was deaf and spoke with some difficulty. They implored him. Jesus took him aside from the crowd. So it seems like there's a, a large group that gathers when he's in this area, which ought to sound familiar because everywhere Jesus goes, there's a crowd that gathers and they're constantly coming to him. Well, they bring a specific individual. And Mark is the only one of the Gospels that records this specific event. Um, they bring this man to him who was deaf and spoke with difficulty. Now, just out of alliteration, I call this blunted, boundless, and broadcast. Blunted is the word that's used here. His, his tongue was blunted. He, he couldn't speak clearly. Now, historically, in English, that's referred to as deaf and dumb. Like I said, socially, that is not an acceptable phrase. It's not a way that we ought to refer to people. And yet, that, that fact, that idea, is exactly what's going on here. The first word for death can mean either your ears or your tongue. That either one isn't working right. But Mark goes on to let us know that he speaks with difficulty. Now, whether that's, you know, it, it, it doesn't tell us the modern equivalent of what that is. Other than, he it, it wasn't completely silent, but he maybe had a lisp. Maybe he stuttered, maybe he, whatever the case, he did not speak well, and he did not hear. That's what's going on, and it's both of them. It's not just one or the other. This individual comes up to Jesus. He's brought by his, his friends, a group. It doesn't tell us anything about the group, but they bring him to this individual and implored him, they begged him, same idea as what had happened with the Syrophoenician woman. She, th this group comes up and asks him, begs him, implores that he lay his hands on this person. We know nothing else about them. We don't know if this is because they, they really like him, if he was a leader of the area, if he was a great man or a terrible man or nothing. We're not told anything about it other than the fact that they came to Jesus because they knew he was able that he could handle this. They implored him. And so, Jesus took him aside from the crowd by himself. Now, the first several times that I read through this, I didn't, I didn't really think much of that. I didn't dig into it. Like, you know, just, okay, that's what he did. But you start digging into it and, and looking at it, and like, wait a minute. 
most of the time when Jesus heals somebody, it's just right there. Something's happening and he, he just heals them. Why does he take this one off to the side? And then we see how he heals him. It says he puts his fingers into his ears. Well, that seems odd. That's a little different. And spits. Sounds kind of gross. Now, we're not, we're not told exactly um, where he spits, the direction, how he spits. Does he spit towards the man or towards the ground or up in the air? It, it doesn't tell us. But it seems kind of odd. So he sticks his fingers in his ears, spits, and then touches his tongue. Now, a lot of versions will say with the saliva. That's implied. Um, but it doesn't, it doesn't tell us, like, yeah, where, where does he spit? What's going on? It seems odd. It seems strange. This is the only time that it's recorded that he does it in this way. And so I, I did some research and digging into it and like, you know, what, what is going on? And one of the things that, that certain commentators were bringing up was that, you know, this was the, the, oftentimes in the Gentile areas, they had healers who practiced magic as well. And, and that these methods seem very similar to that. And then the, the light went off in my head, and I realized, you know, he gets away from the crowd. He steps to the side, so they're not watching and seeing how this all occurs. So my suspicion, and, and this is Isaac's suspicion, my suspicion is that he steps away so that he doesn't confuse the crowd, but he does this in a way that makes sense to the individual, but rather than giving any kind of credence to any of the magic or medicinal methods of the day, and I'm, I'm using the air quotes because, I mean, there's a lot of misunderstanding of what all's going on with even their, their ideas of medicine, but he, he fits the mold in a way that's comforting to the individual, but he breaks the mold and that he's not doing it as a, as a magical incantation. He's not doing it in a way to draw attention to himself. He gets away from the crowd. And so, like I said, this is, this is Isaac's conclusion on it. He handles this individual in a way that's comfortable to the individual while not distracting from the message and the purpose of what he's doing. This seems like a really odd way of doing things. Why would he stick his fingers in his ear, spit, and touch the tongue? It, just, it doesn't make sense to our mindset, to our way of thinking. Somehow, it seems to make sense to them. Regardless of that, regardless of, of why is he using this particular method, what we find is, who's in charge? Who's able? Jesus. Could he have done this a different way? Yes, most definitely. He can do it however he wants to. Because Jesus is in complete authority, complete charge of the entire situation. He can deal with this however he wants to. That's the way that he chose to. That's how he decided to. So ultimately, when we ask those questions, of like, well, why did he do it this way? Because that's how he wanted to do it. And he's the one who's in charge. He gets to make that decision. So he did those things. He looks up to heaven with a deep sigh. And that, that's not just like a, a little escape of breath, but like, <sighs> and again, that's, that's one of those, well, why is he doing that? 
Is he, is he feeling the pain of the individual? Is he empathizing with them? Is he expressing a trust and reliance on God? It, it doesn't say. It just tells us that's what he did. And then he, he says in Aramaic, which Mark then translates into Greek for us, which is interesting because he's in an area that might have understood Aramaic or might not have. So is this a phrase, the... the Ephatheta, is that a phrase that would be comforting to the guy or is it a phrase that would make no sense? We're, we're not positive, but that's the phrase that he uses and then Mark translates it into Greek, which obviously translated in English means be opened. And so he's telling this guy's ears to open up. What happens? Verse 35, his ears were opened. Exactly what Jesus said to happen is exactly what did happen. And, so not only were his ears open, and the impediment of his tongue was removed. That, that word there is loosed, released, or the bounds were taken off. See where I'm going with the blunted, boundless? Blunted, his, he, his tongue was blunt. It didn't work right. Now that has been released. It's been unblunt, unbounded. It's boundless now. And he began to speak plainly. So immediately... Jesus heals this guy in, a, in an odd, unusual way that doesn't make a lot of sense to us and the way that we think and the way that we operate. And yet, somehow, it made sense to him to do it that way at that time. We don't have a parallel account that explains some of these things to us. Like we do, uh, sometimes Matthew records the same thing and gives us a little bit broader of an understanding or something. We don't have that here. What we have, though is that Jesus is completely in charge, completely in control, and he can operate how he wants to because he's able to handle this in a way that no one else could. No magician, no healer, no medical professionals, no nothing was able to do what Jesus was able to do. Now, we need to, we need to pause and go back real briefly. Where are they at? The region of Decapolis, right? Is that Jewish or Gentile? Do you remember? It's Gentile region. So Jesus just touched a Gentile, used spit. He, he's not being clean yet again. So this, this idea that we saw back at the beginning of chapter 7 is continuing all through this. Jesus is not conforming to the mold or the expectation of the religious leaders. He is going places that he shouldn't go. He's interacting with people he shouldn't interact with. He's doing things he shouldn't be doing. And yet through all of this, what is his purpose? What is his goal? What is he doing? We already talked about it with the Syrophoenician lady. Spreading the good news, the gospel of the kingdom of God. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the promised one. That lady recognized it and understood it and proclaimed, I trust you, Jesus. Here, we then see not only an individual, this man that is healed, but others also. Now, verse 36, he gave them orders not to tell anyone. That's what he had done multiple times. But this is a message, this is a good news that is so powerful, they can't keep it a secret. And just like every other time that he's told people to keep it quiet, 
They can't. They don't. The more he ordered them, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. They let it be known far and wide. What, what were they saying? What were they utterly astonished with? He has done all things well. Why did he choose to do it the way that he did? I don't know. I've proposed some ideas, some thoughts that might fit. They fit the context. They fit what's going on. Why did he do it that way? I don't know. But they make a declaration that I think we need to also recognize and understand. He has done all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Now, that's an interesting phrase that they use. An interesting idea that's being presented. And in our our last couple of minutes, I want to point you to an Old Testament prophecy. See, there's this idea that's going on through this that is is underlying a lot of different things. Um, This idea of deaf, the the Greek word kophos, means mute or deaf, can be used for either one, and it's only used here and in the Greek version of Isaiah. So what I think is happening is that Mark is pulling out a reminder to the people to let them know that the God of the Old Testament in Isaiah, who said that he will make the mute to speak and the deaf to hear, is the same God that is doing what we are seeing right here. And these individuals recognize and praise him because he does everything well. And he makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. There is no doubt in these people's mind about who it is that came into their region and healed this individual. Jesus has been going around near the Sea of Galilee to the Jews, spreading this message of the good news of who God is, of the kingdom of God, that it is coming, that it is here, that Jesus is the Messiah, ready to to fulfill Old Testament prophecies, to, to heal the land, to do all of these things. And the Jews have missed it. They've ignored him. They've rejected him, and oftentimes, or like the disciples, they just don't get it. They don't understand it. But then Jesus makes this trip out into the other regions, areas that have heard about him, areas that actually came up a few other times throughout the Gospel of Mark that have heard the messages that have been a part of certain things. Jesus goes to them and lets them know exactly who he is. And they get it. They understand this is the Messiah. This is the promised one. And once again, this good news is too good to be kept a secret. And so they broadcast it far and wide, letting everyone know that they can possibly tell. Which, I'll admit, leads us to the so what. What difference does this passage make? It seems kind of offensive. It seems kind of odd. It's, what, what is going on here? Jesus is, is doing things in a strange way. So what do we draw from this? What do we understand from this? 
What difference should this make? Well, we've seen two different individuals, two different situations, and the same response. Number one, so what? We need to come to him humbly. Not in my own righteousness, not in my own awareness, not because of who I am, but just like that Syrophoenician who just comes up and falls at his feet, acknowledges who she is and who others are, says, Jesus, I trust you. That's it. And then we need to be like these folks in the area of Decapolis. If we've heard the good news, if we've trusted Christ, if we've seen that he does all things well, our response should be exactly the same. That we proclaim it widely. That we let people know. If Jesus has changed your heart and your life, if you've accepted him as your savior, that ought to well up in you in such a way that you can't help but tell others. Now, that doesn't mean that we need to be rude and and disrespectful or anything like that, but it ought to be a continuous thing in which we simply declare he has done all things well. The things that we look at as good, the things that we look at as bad, the things that we don't understand, all of it, he has done well. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He is the fulfillment of the New Testament. He is God. And we need to broadcast that far and wide, letting people know who Jesus is. I told you this was a passage that's a little bit odd and a little bit offensive. We as believers might be a little bit odd and sometimes come off as offensive, not with the purpose of offending, but simply because we are sharing the good news of who Jesus is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, it can seem strange to us at times, and yet it is amazing. May we, like these folks from the region of Decapolis, declare that you have done all things well. Lord, help us to come to you humbly, not in our own righteousness, not demanding our way, not trusting our own good deeds or anything else, but simply humbly coming to you, declaring you to be who you are and leaning into the promises that you have made. And Lord, for those of us who have trusted you as our Savior, may we be like these who cannot keep silent, who cannot keep from telling others. Help us to share who you are, what you've done, particularly in this season of the year in which we celebrate and really the whole world recognizes Christmas in some way or another, may we use that as an opportunity to share that Jesus did come. He didn't come to just lay in a manger, but to die on a cross so that my sins and everyone else's sins could be paid for. And we could have a personal relationship with you. Thank you, Lord. Lord, if there's one here who doesn't know you, hasn't trusted you, I pray that you would draw them to you. Give them the courage to speak with someone who will be able to guide them, help them understand the amazing gift that you have given. 
the gift of salvation. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.